If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons. To support the show starting at just $1 per month and access extended content and potentially join our Green Dreamer network as well, you can head to greendreamer.com support to learn more. The idea that, that we think we know more than nature, I think is obviously a bit ludicrous and that we really need to be spending time learning as much as we can about nature as it existed and as it exists now in order to move forward. That was Keith Bowers, the founder and president of Biohabitat, which is a multidisciplinary organization focused on conservation planning, ecological restoration, and regenerative design. Stay tuned as we're about to go into part two of our two-part extended conversation with Keith. If you haven't already, be sure to tune into episode 167 first, which is part one of this interview, so then you can get a comprehensive background of Keith's work in ecological restoration and regeneration before diving into the rest of our conversation here, where we're going to go on to explore what it means to support more technology-driven, innovative, and new solutions to our environmental issues, as opposed to solutions based more on biomimicry, why simply greening our urban spaces without looking at habitat connectivity and the specific choices of species may be inadequate for maximizing our positive impacts with restoration and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. I think many environmentalists struggle with our relationship with technological advancement. There's definitely a group of people who believe that we can innovate our ways out of the troubles that we've created. And then there's another group that believes more so that we just need to learn from nature, which has been doing research and development for millions of years and base our technology you know, off of biomimicry rather than inventing something that's totally new based on human-centered anthropology centric ingenuity. Where do you stand on this in terms of what we need most to be able to address our varied and most urgent environmental issues today? 
Yeah, that's a raging debate in, in, <laughs> in, in restoration ecology and conservation biology. So there's this idea that, you know, what we're creating today are these novel ecosystems, novel being new. In other words, these ecosystems that are that you're bringing together certain species of plants, certain species of animals, you're changing soil conditions, you're changing, you're changing hydrology, and you're bringing together this this ecosystem that is, there's no analog, there's no example of it in the past, right? And what do we, how do we, how do we even make sense of an ecosystem like that? We, you know, we're just beginning to understand and learn that that's what's happening. And we have no idea how it's going to evolve. We have no idea what species are going to be successful and which ones aren't. We have no idea the long-term consequences of the ecological processes of these novel ecosystems. So there's a, a debate within the restoration community of, again, not that we're trying to restore the past. We're certainly trying to restore the future. But how much of the past do we use in looking at how ecosystems have operated, what's made them functional, what's made them healthy? How can we be assured that if we are thinking about restoration in the future, what can we learn from that to set up a trajectory of success for these future ecosystems that will evolve and in many ways evolve in ways that we can't even think about right now? So, so number one, that's, that's something we need to be thinking about is do we embrace this idea of novel ecosystems and, and learn from them or do we try maybe not necessarily fight the idea of novel ecosystems, but really pay homage to the ecosystems that have occurred in the past and do everything in our power to move to, to establish or restore ecosystems that will function and behave in ways that we believe, at least at this point in time, will be resilient over time. Right. Mm-hmm. And then I think that there are, there are other there are other, you know, Everything, the technology that's developing today, everything from being able to, you know, we, we can take a cup of water out of a lake and we can do DNA sampling and we can figure out all the species in that lake without having to spend months or years trying to capture and identify all those species, right? So there are some technologies, that, whether it's drones or DNA sampling or iNaturalist that you can get on your phone or looking at big data and analyzing big data or putting in microsensors. There's all kinds of things that we're beginning to employ to help us better understand these ecosystems in a way that we've never been able to understand them in the past. So from a technology standpoint, I think that's all good. But then when you get into you get into thinking about gene splicing and changing DNA and species to have them better adapt to future conditions, that's where I think it gets a bit murky. And again, the idea that that we think we know more than nature, I think is obviously a bit ludicrous and that we really need to be spending time learning as much as we can about nature as it existed and as it exists now in order to move forward. Mm. So do you personally lean more towards the path where we should be embracing novel ecosystems or more so that we should be paying homage to what we already knew worked in the past? Yeah, I I certainly lean toward paying homage to what we, you know, what we need to and what we've learned in the past. Mm. Yep. And what are your reasons for that as opposed to to the other way? Um, I just think that 
where we have no idea again how these novel ecosystems are going to evolve and i think that there are going to be winners and and losers from a biodiversity standpoint and i'm not convinced right now that there i'm convinced that they're going to be more losers than winners so in other words you know w- you know we've recently heard about the crisis in in losing species and biodiversity and die off and that we're going through this sixth grade extinction right now and I'm just not convinced that novel ecosystems are going to be the answer to provide the habitat and the ecological functioning that we need to conserve the species that are left on this planet. Mm -hmm. And I think the best way of doing that is to learn the habitats that they've evolved with and to try to mimic those habitats going forward and not necessarily throw our arms up at the air and say, well, we've completely you know, altered this landscape here, um, I guess we kind of give up and just start from there. Mm. Well, when we take a step back to look at the big picture, it's clear that our current understanding and ways of development is really not serving our best interests. So what is your vision of what development could look like that doesn't lead to degradation, but enables people to truly be able to live in harmony with nature and live lives of more abundance of the things that really matter to us and wellness, connection and fulfillment? So again, it's being regenerative versus doing less bad, right? So I also think that, and we're becoming more, obviously with Silent Spring, uh, the book by Rachel Carson back in the 60s, I believe, you know, we began to learn more about our footprint on the landscape in terms of pollution and pesticides. And I think that we need to find ways to, grow food, we need to find ways to live on the landscape that we are reducing and eliminating all these toxic chemicals. That needs to be, that needs to happen pretty quickly. So I think, you know, when you talk about developing ways that don't, that, that don't equate to environmental destruction, we need to figure out first, stop polluting the landscape and stop polluting our water and our soil and our air. I think the second thing is we need to think about ways of developing the landscape in harmony with nature. And I, I you know, mean that in both a, a, I guess, personal way, but also in a, you know, when we're looking at larger scale projects, whether it's a city, whether it's a highway, whether it's a commercial district, we need to be finding ways where the idea of life and life giving is part of the equation when we go to develop the landscape and how do we not only how do we protect life that's there, but how do we also restore life that has disappeared from there or provide opportunities for life beyond us humans for other species. And I think there's a lot of, of pieces out there, a lot of good examples of pieces of that. It's just that we haven't done it in a very comprehensive way anywhere. And I think that that's what we really need to be looking at now. And then this idea of reconnecting the fragments that are left, just like we need a road to get from our house to our school or a house to a shopping center. Species need corridors, you know, to move about the landscape. And if we and they need to interact with with other species to increase the gene pool and the genetics. And if we don't, if we don't pay attention to that, 
then we can have all the green patches we want scattered throughout the country and we're going to create a genetic sink for these species. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's the other thing we really need to be looking at when we develop in a way that really limits our, our environmental impact. Right. So it's not just about greening our planet. We have to do that very strategically, understanding what we're doing within this restoration work. We do. You know, I get involved in a lot of planning projects with other planners and landscape architects and architects and engineers. And, you know, they'll they'll have these plans where they'll put aside green space and they'll say, yeah, here's where we're protecting the environment. And to your point, if it's not strategically connected to other green space or it's not large enough for the species that they're protecting, then it's going to become a genetic sink in the long run. And so really we're we're, we're fooling ourselves, we're kidding ourselves if we think that we're doing good by doing that without that strategic thinking behind it. Mm. So we should definitely recommend all the urban planners we know collaborate with biohabitats. <laughs> and to close, what do you think we can do as individuals to get involved in the work of restoration that would be the most impactful and to help revive a planet of ecological complexity and diversity? Yeah, I, I think a few things. One is uh, I think there's a really strong link between social and environmental justice and ecology. And so I think we need to make sure that that social equity and environmental justice are front and foremost in the work that we do, that we're including all populations in the decision making that we're doing and that everybody has a say. There's a a retired professor, Randy Hester, who taught out at UC Berkeley in landscape architecture, and he sort of coined this term ecological democracy, mm. the idea that that everybody, including all species, should have a say in in how we treat the landscape and, and how we go about conservation and restoration. So I think that's the first thing. I think that the next thing is that we all, as, as we mentioned before, we all need to get involved in policy. It either a very local level or if we've got the capacity and wherewithal at a higher level. So again, looking at things like how, how is my town planned? Who, who oversees that planning? How, how does public works work? And where do they put in sewers? And where's the water filtration plant? And what are the building standards here? And how can, they, how can all those things be improved from an ecological perspective? And then simple things like, you know, we can all do native landscaping around our homes or our churches or our schools. The idea that using non-native plants really has very little to no biodiversity success. And so we really need to be looking at ways that we can, in some ways, rewild our landscapes. And, and, it, and it can be done in a very it could be done in a very manicured way, but we still need to think about bringing back the native native plants. And then just, just plain on advocating for natural areas and reconnecting some fragmented habitat, whether that's a pocket park in your neighborhood or whether that's lining your street with street trees. And maybe you think about, well, you know, it'd be re really great to have all elms or all ash along my street. But what if you mix that up with different species of overstory trees and threw in a couple of understory trees that are all native that provide great songbird habitat that when you're driving down your street, not only do you get the shade and you get that sort of feeling that you're under the canopy, but it's a corridor where species move through. 
right? So there's a lot of other, there's a lot of things that we all can do. For me, one of the big things is appreciate the wild, right? The unkept, the randomness of native habitat, because we all, you know, in many ways, we've all sort of like this idea of things being very manicured because it feels safe to us. It feels predictable to us. But I think if we give a little there in the areas and appreciate that wildness, then that alone will help from a biodiversity standpoint. Before we go into our final five, I wanted to take a moment to sincerely thank our listener patrons for helping to make Green Dreamer possible and invite you to join me on Patreon for extended content as well, starting at just $1 per month. With Green Dreamer being an independent media platform, every little contribution helps a lot, and I do really appreciate it. For more information, you can head to greendreamer.com support to learn more. As I'm starting to publish more videos and field interviews on YouTube, I'd love to invite you to join me there as well by going to greendreamer.com YouTube. Thank you so much for being here and for your continued dedication to co-creating a better world for us all. For now, on to our final five. Let's power through. What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really impactful for you? Yeah, well, I, I would be remiss to say that Biohabitats puts out the a quarterly publication called Leaf Litter, which really focuses on conservation, restoration, and regenerative ideas. And every issue is sort of a theme, a theme of a certain idea or issue or a certain uh, issue there. So I think that would be great. You know, the magazine, yes, the magazine Orion, they've always been been publications that I've gone to. There have been so many books. I don't, I don't even know if I could even begin <laughs> to to talk about what books have really influenced me over the years. It's It's been a, a tremendous amount. I love to read and I love to read about ecology and about what people are doing out there. Society for Ecological Restoration, they're an organization like uh, similar to the Wildlands Network that I talked about, but they put out information. So if anybody's interested in ecological restoration, I think that would be great. The Wildlands Network as well. And then there's an organization called Rewilding, right? So this whole idea of how do you begin rewilding the landscape? So, you know, through those organizations and those publications, it would really you know, if somebody's really interested in that, that would help. And it, that that kind of information is uplifting to me. It's you know we try to get away from the gloom and doom out there because there's enough of that. But what can we be doing to make a positive change out there? Hmm. On a similar note, what do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? For me, it's I really feel like we're making a difference. That we are doing something positive and active. And I. I I couldn't think of anything more I'd want to do with my life and my career in in terms of ecological restoration because I I feel like I get to work go to work every day and every day that we're out there really making a real tangible difference on the landscape and so that really is what keeps me inspired. Mm. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? Oh, I run. I run a lot. <laughs> run 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 and I I do meditation. So those two those two things I do for my health. What's one thing you're working on right now to live more regeneratively or to elevate your impact in this area? Yeah. So I think one of the things that my wife and I just recently did is we're downsizing and we're downsizing. We, we Instead of building a new home, we downsized into an existing home. Um, we're adding solar. We're 
doing our own gardens. Um, we're looking at putting in a, a rainwater collection system and and uh, gray water reuse system. So the whole idea of you know doing more of walking the talk out there, and I think that's something that we've tried to do from a a business perspective too. That and in just operating our business, you know, we want to we want to be out there and prove that you can have a for-profit business and do good for the world and operate it in such a way that you are being sustainable or regenerative. So that's really important to me. So that's something that I've worked on both personally and worked on from a business perspective. Mm. What makes you most hopeful for our humanity and our planet at the moment? Ah, boy. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You know, I, I sometimes tell people that Sometimes I feel like I'm rearranging the deck tears on the Titanic. <laughs> <laughs> but again, going back to what I said earlier, you know, I, I wouldn't be in this line of work and doing this if I didn't think it was making a difference. And that, uh, you know, as we talked about earlier, restora- the whole restoration market has really taken off. The UN is, has recognized ecological restoration, this being the decade of ecological restoration. There's a lot of worldwide initiatives that are beginning to happen on restoration and recognizing that restoration is an act of something that people can can actively participate in and get reconnected to nature. And so, you know, I think that's what makes me most hopeful. Mm. Well, thank you so much for this deeply insightful conversation. Definitely learn a lot for myself and I'm sure for our listener as well. So we would, of course, love to keep learning from you and check out your quarterly publication. So where can we follow and support your work online? Yeah, so I think if you just go to biohabitats.com, it's all there. And and if you want to click on leaf litter and look at past issues and sign up to get future issues, you know, that would be fantastic. So Amazing. And yeah. what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? You know, our, our number one value in our organization is revere wild nature, right? That it's it's just not nature, it's just not wildness. But you know, I think I think if we revere it in a way that we're all struck by it, that would be really great. And find that in every place you go. I think seeking ecological democracy. The more we can think about an ecocentric perspective instead of an anthropocentric perspective, and do other species do other species have a say at the table? I think that's really great. And then just advocate. You know, I, I think more and more we're learning that advocacy can play such a huge role and should be embedded in all the work that we do. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in. To support the show, access extended content, and join our Green Dreamer network, you can head to greendreamer.com support for more information. To receive weekly solutions-driven news around ecological regeneration and intersectional sustainability, you can sign up to our free Green Dreamer Weekly Digest at greendreamer.com. And if you'd like to come say hey to let me know that you're tuning in, you can find me on Instagram at greendreamerpodcast and at Shane. Finally, as we're wrapping up here, just remember, now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer.